This is Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. This story is based on original research and interviews that I did for my book, Cold Case Vancouver. And just a warning that this episode is about the abduction and murder of a young child, and it may be tough to listen to. Evangeline Azacon was a pretty seven-year-old girl who had moved to Vancouver from Manila with her family in 1966. She was in grade two at Edith Cavell Elementary School. Just the day before, her mother had made her stay home from school because she had a cold. She wanted Evangeline to stay home and rest for another day. But Evangeline loved school, and she had lots of friends, and she was upset about not being allowed to go. Her mother, 27-year-old Corazon finally relented and Evangeline was allowed to walk the five blocks to school with a friend and next-door neighbour Caroline Cruz, as the two girls normally did. The Arzacons lived in a duplex at the corner of 19th and Laurel Street in the South Camby area of Vancouver. It's a pretty area only about five kilometres from the downtown core and bordering on Queen Elizabeth Park. The duplex is still there. Evangeline lived there with her mother and father, older brother Armando, nine, and younger siblings Eric, five, Mercy, four, and Cynthia, two. It was a cold November morning, and Evangeline's mother helped her dress for school in a red sweater and matching shoes, and the faded brown corduroy jumper that she had made for her. Corazon put a yellow plastic head clip shaped like a horseshoe in Evangeline's short black hair and she placed a chocolate brown hat with a leather bow on the little girl's head. Just before she went out the door, Evangeline put on a winter jacket, a dark green and black checkered coat with an imitation black fur collar. She wore two gold earrings. Her mother packed a red plaid lunchbox with chocolate milk, potato chips, a pear, a boiled egg, and a sandwich. Evangeline's name and address were printed inside the lid. Evangeline and Caroline normally stayed for a little while after school to help their teacher Mrs. Bouchard get the classroom ready for the next day. But on this particular day, Caroline wasn't available, so the teacher asked Stephanie Yarda if she could stay with Evangeline. Afterwards, the two little girls headed home. Stephanie would be one of the last people to see Evangeline that day. She was last seen at about 3.15pm near Heather Street and 19th Avenue, just by the park, about halfway between the school and her home. This is Stephanie Yarda. Unfortunately, I I only remember a little bit. And I remember that day because I was the last person to see her. And after that, you know, basically all hell broke loose at the school, at home. You know, everybody was just so upset, obviously. Such a devastating thing. She was, a, I would say, shy girl. Very nice and helpful, 
And, and I remember my mom saying the family had moved here from the Philippines for a better life, you know, safer for the children, better life. And then, yeah, that happened. How did you come to be the last person to see her? Evangeline and I stayed late to help the teacher. And actually, usually, I think it was Caroline and Evangeline staying late to help the teacher, her friend Caroline. Right. But that day, Caroline wasn't available. So I was asked to stay, I guess. You know, as a seven-year-old or whatever, you're quite excited to be able to help the teacher after school. Sure. So it was Evangeline and I, and when he had finished, I, mean, I don't think it was very long that we stayed, but when we had finished, we left the school and we walked down 21st Avenue to Ash Street. Well, basically the end of the school ground. And I turned up Ash and she crossed the street and went west on 21st to her house. And that was the last time anyone saw her. If the newspapers are accurate, she was taken from just as she was walking past Heather Park. Yeah, because I do have a vivid memory of that. We walked together to that corner, then we had to go separate ways. So pretty much she would have been taken straight after you left? Yes. We were one of the first calls because of that fact that I was the last person to see her that day. But no, I didn't see anything or anybody. When Evangeline hadn't arrived by 3.30 that afternoon, Corazon started to worry. If the little girl was going to a friend's place to play after school, she always asked her mother first. And while sometimes she would stop to collect leaves and sticks along the way home, she was always back well before dark, and never home later than 4pm. The family had splurged on a colour television a few months ago, and Evangeline typically arrived home around 3.15 every day to watch her favourite cartoon show. At 4pm, Corazon started to call Evangeline's friends. No one had seen her. She called Evangeline's father, Alejandro, a 35-year-old draftsman who worked for Canadian Comstock, a construction engineering company in Vancouver. Alejandro, who went by Alex, came home from work and started to search the neighbourhood. He spent hours searching in the rain, going back and forth between their duplex and the school and walking the blocks around the area. At first, he thought Evangeline might have either fallen, been hit by a car or taken a detour and become lost. At 9pm, he phoned police. We'll be back after this short break from our sponsor. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor, and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. Police did a house-to-house neighbourhood search. Several dog teams were brought in to search Queen Elizabeth Park, as well as a general area where Evangeline was last seen. Evangeline was a shy little girl who loved to read and play with her brothers and sisters. Her parents said they'd told Evangeline not to take candy from strangers, but they had no idea what she would do if she was approached by someone who she didn't know. 
Police asked residents in the area to check their yard, garage, basement and even their garbage cans, anywhere that might offer a potential clue to the little girl's disappearance. The search went all night and throughout the next day. Alex was asked to stay at home and wait for a phone call or more news. He wasn't happy about that and he paced up and down the worn rug in their living room. This is what he told a reporter from the province newspaper. It's read by Mark Dunn. I searched the streets all last night in case she had slipped and had an accident in the wet. We checked out all her friends and nobody had seen her. Tonight, I must just go on looking for her. I cannot sleep and every time I stop looking, I start thinking what might have happened to her. I feel stupid staying here. I want to be out looking for her. But our friends say it's better for me to be home near the telephone. I keep asking myself, why this little girl? I have nothing, nothing but my family. No ransom to pay. She would not run away from home. She's different from most Canadian children, not so independent. Family ties are very, very strong among Filipino families. I cannot say properly our thanks to all the people who've helped us search. We never thought there would be this reaction. So many people are concerned for us, for Evangeline. We will not give up hope. On the third day after Evangeline went missing, police were calling her disappearance a possible abduction, and 2,000 people had mobilised to search the city. Volunteers began a phone campaign that attempted to reach every person listed in the 798 pages of the Greater Vancouver Telephone Directory. Stephanie's mother, Dorothy Yarda, was one of the parents who helped with the telephone campaign. This is Dorothy. That must have been horrible, knowing that your daughter was the last person to have seen her. I know, that both of them were walking home alone, and it could have easily been my daughter. How did you find out about it? Okay, well, we had gone out for dinner, and so when we got home, the phone rang, and it was the school principal, and he wanted to know if Steph had seen Evangeline after school, and she said yes. So they were quite excited for a minute or two there, even that they'd found someone who had seen her after school. Then we found out what had happened, that they couldn't find her. Well, that was the first we knew of it. What happened next? How did you get involved with the search? Well, it must have been through the parents' group, I guess, that they asked parents to phone the whole Vancouver phone book, asking each person to take a page at least. I did do that. I did do my page. I can't remember if it was more than a page. A page was a lot, though. It was very small print in the phone book. It was 798 pages. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. That's amazing. And it was not a pleasant call to make because people didn't like it. F- phone and say what it was you were phoning about and ask them if they would please check their, their yard and their garage and totally check their property to see if there was any trace or any clue of any kind. Did people think that she'd been kidnapped at that point? I guess they were kind of expecting the worst. By the Tuesday, more than 5,000 people had joined in and they were tramping through dense bush in areas as far east as Chilliwack and as far south as the Blaine-Douglas-US border. As the days went past, the search gained momentum 
Members of the police and firefighters joined on their days off. Army units from Jericho combed Stanley Park and soldiers from the Chilliwack Army Base searched the Fraser Valley. Local First Nations bands joined in. Canoe Club members scoured False Creek. Richmond Gun Club members searched Lulu, Sea and Iona Islands. Members of other boating clubs searched waterways and members of the North Vancouver Ski Patrol searched the Seymour Mountain region. University professors cancelled classes and more than 3,500 students from the University of BC and Simon Fraser University hunted through the bushland that surrounded those institutions in Point Grey and Burnaby. High school students from Vancouver College, Notre Dame and St Thomas Aquinas in North Vancouver joined in the search. Other North Shore students were released from classes to help police check out leads in their area. More than 300 ham radio operators, scouts, cubs, cadets and ambulance crews offered assistance. Okanagan helicopters donated a helicopter. BC Telephone, the forerunner to TELUS, installed special lines into search headquarters near the Arzacon home. And a local supermarket supplied coffee and cookies to volunteers. Dutch clairvoyant Gerard Crosset was called in to help find Evangeline. A searcher told a reporter, We know it sounds like a slim chance, but he's found people all over the place we're desperate about now. Rewards for information leading to Evangeline's safe return totaled $5,000, including $1,000 from her father's employer, Canadian Comstock. By the time the official search was called off on December 12th, close to 50,000 people had searched bush, back streets, mountains, beaches and riverbanks. More than 80 organisations had participated. Evangeline had literally disappeared without a trace and it would take another two months before the Arzacon family would get an answer. Andrea Nicholson went to school with Evangeline in Grade 1 at Cecil Rhodes Elementary, and they became close friends. When Evangeline went to Edith Cavell for Grade 2, the two girls kept in close contact. Here's Andrea. Tell me about her. What was she like? Lots of fun, lots of laughter. I remember her laugh, Eve. I, I remember her dear laugh. Still see her happy eyes. And you'd been yeah. to her house and everything, had you? Oh, played all the time and on the weekends. Oh. So we're such a nice family. It was just so welcoming. I remember a number of adults there. So maybe it was grandparents. I know some did not speak English. But I was always given a hug at the door. And they were so friendly. Just it was a happy place, a happy home to go to. Tell me about the neighbourhood. What was it like? The neighbourhood was wonderful, Eve. It was a beautiful place to grow up. You always had someone to ride your bike to the school with and to play on the playground. And the playground was jammed with kids. Everyone knew each other. You knew your neighbours. And even the three-story walk-up apartments that some of us lived in, it was still very friendly. And you walked to school with a big group of friends, 10, 15 friends sometimes. How did you find out that she disappeared? It was my mum that told me. But I do remember her sitting me on our couch. I remember exactly what corner. And I remember her telling me that, we need to be aware. You see, the other thing she had to tell me is that there were parent groups. So, for example, my mom 
would let me walk with my friends by that grade. Well, none of us were allowed to do that. I think what was very scary for me was the searching, Mm. adult searching everywhere. You would see people in the alleys and looking in the garbage cans, and our apartment building was searched, and all they must have had grids doing searches, and lots of police officers around. And that went on for a long, long time. It's still so upsetting to think about it. Like, we were all the same age. We're all turning 60 this year. At 9.30am on January 20th, 1970, a farmer in Port Cowles, a neighbourhood of Surrey, was walking through an abandoned mill site that adjoined his property when he found a red child's lunchbox with Evangeline's name inside it. He called police. Police scoured the property, a marshy area dotted with flooded pools and drainage ditches and screened by scrubby trees that was frequently flooded by the nearby Fraser River. Two hours into the search, a police officer found a child's red shoe at the edge of a pond surrounded by swamp and willows. Minutes later, RCMP Constable Alfred Erickson found a child's body lying face down in a drainage trench flooded by about 60 centimetres of water. Evangeline was still dressed in the clothes she wore the day she went missing. It was two months to the day after she disappeared. The area, which had once been a sawdust dump on the mill property, boarded the Canadian National Railway at 192nd Street and Margaret Road, about half a kilometre south of the Trans-Canada Highway. Police believed that she had been left on dry ground and her body had been covered with old firewood and scrap. Later, the area had flooded, leaving Evangeline's body in the pool left by the floodwaters from the nearby river. After Evangeline's body was taken away, police sealed off the area and took to the frozen pond with rakes and with hooks attached to long iron rods to crack the ice and look for evidence. A grader and three ditch diggers arrived from the city of Surrey and started to lower the level of the pond in the hope of finding more clues to the identity of the killer. An autopsy showed Evangeline died the day she was taken, between four and ten hours after eating the lunch her mother had packed for her. She'd been sexually assaulted, there was bruising around her head and a cut above her left eye, and she'd either drowned or had choked to death on her own vomit. There was a mass held for Evangeline at the Holy Rosary Cathedral in Vancouver. The family had requested a small service, and most of the 100 people in the congregation were from the city's Filipino community. During the Mass, Evangeline's parents and nine-year-old brother Armando sat in the front pew close to their daughter's tiny white casket. The family left the cathedral in a private car and Corazon and Armando left Vancouver that afternoon to accompany Evangeline on a flight to the Philippines so her body could be buried in Manila. After Evangeline's body was found, the case moved into the hands of the Surrey RCMP's Criminal Investigation Branch. For the first two weeks of the investigation, the entire Surrey plainclothes detail of 18 men worked night and day, assisted by several uniformed officers. After the first month, the detail was reduced to eight, and Staff Sergeant E.C. Dome, who headed the investigation, 
By August, the investigation comprised three plainclothes men and a fourth man undertaking a reinvestigation. Herb Pittman, a garage owner near the site, told police he'd seen three cars parked in the area around the time Evangeline had disappeared. 13-year-old Brian Busser, who lived across the road from where Evangeline's body was found, told a province reporter that he'd seen a man driving a red and white 1959 Chevrolet in the area five times in recent weeks. The last time was about 10 days before Evangeline's body was found. Brian said that the man would stop in a different place each time along the road and stay for up to three hours. The problem for police was that the 20-acre site was still used as a dump by locals and that in recent years it had become a popular lover's lane. Police concentrated the search on sexual predators with connections to the area where the Arzacons lived and to where Evangeline's body was found. One theory that the police worked under was that the murderer worked in Vancouver but lived in Surrey and was familiar with the property where Evangeline's body was found. For those of you who are not familiar with Vancouver's Lower Mainland, Surrey lies between the Fraser River and the Canadian-US border. It's about a 40-minute drive from Vancouver, and it's the province's second-largest city after Vancouver by population. The logic was that there were plenty of isolated spots between Vancouver and Surrey where Evangeline could have been attacked and dumped. But the killer picked the isolated spot near the Fraser River for a reason. It was good thinking, Neil Boyd told me when I interviewed him back in 2015. Boyd is the former director of the School of Criminology at Simon Fraser University, and he told me that people like to operate within their comfort zone, and that's particularly true of criminals. Basically, most people operate within a a comfort zone, and particularly people who commit crimes operate within a comfort zone. So they tend to commit their crimes in areas that they know well. And so you can look at where a sequence of crime occurs, and you can begin to get a sense from that geography of where the offender is likely to live. So what what geographic profiling allows you to do is to narrow the spatial map to a point where you hopefully have a relatively good idea of where the person who committed this crime is likely to be living. But then again, then you're looking for somebody who lives in that area who, for example, may have a previous criminal record or a previous criminal record relating to some kind of sex crime. Police checked known pedophiles who targeted girls aged 6 to 11 and were out on parole. They checked Riverview Mental Hospital and the prisons for men who were out on a pass on November 20th, the day Evangeline went missing, and they checked their movements. They checked every lead, every hint, every phone call, until the individual mention was cleared and they added the results to the Arzacon murder file. In November of 1970, police said they were looking for a Caucasian of medium to small build and of medium to blonde colouring. Staff Sergeant Domey told reporters that the conclusions were the result of scientific eliminations. There was no DNA back then and likely little evidence remaining at the scene. So the sources of these scientific eliminations is a complete mystery. In January 1971, Police said they had two prime suspects. Both were later eliminated. But in 1972, police figured they had their man, following the murder of another seven-year-old girl from Vancouver. Tanya Bush's body was also found in Surrey. 
Bizarrely, records were so bad apparently that not even police could find out if Tanya's killer was in or out of jail when Evangeline was murdered, and sadly, Evangeline's murder file remains unsolved. Visit evelazarus.com and buy Eve a coffee if you're enjoying Cold Case Canada. This story is based on original research that I did for my book Cold Case Vancouver. If you'd like to order Cold Case Vancouver or my new book, Cold Case BC, my publisher, Arsenal Pulp Press, is offering a 20% discount to my podcast listeners. Just go to the website, arsenalpulp.com, and use the promo code COLDCASE when you check out. That's one word, COLDCASE. If you'd like more information on this or other cases, please go to my website, evelazarus.com, or join us on the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. Next week, I'll be bringing you the story of Tanya Bush's murder and how her killer was eventually apprehended and put back in jail. I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada, and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada, and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934, there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher. Podcatcher.